Holy Father, we bow before your presence to thank you that you've invited us to come. And Lord, as we sang that song, I couldn't help but think that uh, often there's so many hurdles and barriers in our path when we try to run to you. And Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit, you will remove those barriers and those hurdles and those things so that we will have a clear path to Jesus today. Help us to run to your heart. Help us to run to you. Help us to shed off the stuff, Lord, that holds us back and those little digressions and diversionary trails that look so inviting. Lord Jesus, may we see you and run to you. Father, strengthen us today. Speak to our hearts today. You know the message that you've placed on my heart is not a very easy one. And I ask of you in the name of your son that you'll give us the ability to listen and to hear. Not so much what I have to say, but what the spirit of God has to say to us through his word that can radically change us and get us to where you want us to be. Father, do your work today. Thank you for each person. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you this morning. And if you are visiting with us, we're just delighted that you are here. We mean that sincerely. We're glad that you've chosen fellowship to stop by and to check us out. And uh, if you don't have a church home, we want to encourage you to make this your place. We are a, I think we're a great church. We got great people. We love the Lord Jesus and we're trying to serve him together. And we want you to come alongside of us and help us to accomplish not only what he's called us to be about, but to receive from him together in this body so that we can all become multiplying disciples. Amen? That's what we're all about. And so glad that you're here. If there's any way that we can be of help or encouragement to you, honestly, we want to do that. Um, You have prayer needs. You have something that you... Uh, need a pastor to talk with you about or interact with you about. We're, that's why we're here. And so we want you to uh, uh, just let us know if you want more information about our church and go out in the commons on my left out here, your right uh, uh, is uh, an area, a welcome area where we have uh, CDs of this morning's uh, presentation. Also information There's a place over to my right, your left, where you can go to. And uh, we, we would just uh, love for you guys to check us out want to say something this morning about our Israel trip. In May, we're leaving for Israel. We're going to have a study tour. It's going to be led by myself and Bob Rowland, and I am excited about this and want to invite you to come along and join us. Uh, the first time I went to Israel, I, was, I said I would never say this uh, when, when I got there because all of my friends who had been to Israel used this line, and I got tired of hearing it. It's a life-changing trip. And so I vowed that I would never use that. Well, don't make foolish vows. It's a life-changing trip. It is indeed a life-changing trip. Seriously, I, uh, you will never, ever read the scriptures the same again. It adds a dimension to your, your walk with the Lord and your understanding that is powerful and profound. Frankly, I know that it's very costly. It's, a, it's not a cheap trip. But at the same time, I think in the scheme of things, when you look back over your life, it will be one of the best investments you have ever made. Uh, I I believe that every Christian, uh, I really believe this, every Christian before they die and go to heaven needs to go to Israel at least one time. 
and uh, we would love for you to join us. It's going to be fun. Uh, so if you've got any questions about it, you want to check out more information about it, uh, I'll tell you what you do. Call the church office. Call Bob Rowland's office. Bob is helping to coordinate the trip, and we'll be able to get the information to you to answer your questions, and uh, it promises to be a marvelous, great, great time. One other quick thing, and Richard mentioned this, but I do want to underscore this. I, I forgot all about this this morning. Um, this little card here is a powerful little thing. It's the heart God revives. This little card is the outline of what I mentioned, the first message in revival. When I told that story in 1995, the summer of 1995 in, in Moby Jim in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, Colorado State University, Six, 7,000 U.S. staff members of Campus Crusade when an authentic revival broke out. It was when Nancy Lee DeMoss, who wrote this, began reading this contrast between proud people and broken people. And uh, I'm not saying that you read this and revival will break out. But what I am saying is that she captures the heart that God touches. And it's just a good thing to have in your Bible Uh, to keep nearby and to remind yourself that God wants a posture of humility and brokenness before him, and that's the heart that he touches. If there are not enough here, uh, I think, and I shouldn't say this, I ought to know this, but I think we have some out in the Welcome Center. If we don't, next week we'll bring some more here, and uh, it's really, really a good piece. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you're here, this is, a, this is the last installment in this five-part series that we've been doing on revival, but it's not the last time we're going to talk about it. Uh, frankly, it is a burden on my heart for our church, and I just need to bring you, you guys into where I am right now. Um, over the last year, particularly the last five, six months, God has been doing something in my heart. And I don't want to sound extravagant, but you know, I'm kind of done with um, playing church. I I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be chasing down programs and hoping that that's the pathway. I really believe at this season in my life and in my ministry and here at the church, we need to keep going back to the essence and the foundational things. And I think sometimes we confuse uh, let me just use this analogy. We think the fancier the faucet is and the, and the fancier the pipes are, that that represents the source. And so we just get, keep getting fancier faucets and fancier pipes and fancier plumbing and talk about the plumbing as if it's the substance. That's only the conduit to the substance. And so we, we've done this series on revival because revival is the norm of the New Testament church. It's not the norm of our experience, though, but it's what is expected, uh, an exciting, refreshing walk with the Lord. No, not emotions, but real life. And so we, we this year, we're emphasizing Psalm 80, verse 18, those three words, give us life. I just want to connect the dots with you. The first three messages, the first message was an overview of what revival is and sort of lightly talked about uh, uh, Psalm 80. And then the next two messages were vertical messages. And the reason for that is that typically revival works in two directions. First, always it's vertical. And then secondly, it's horizontal. And so we talked about our walk with God and sin and those issues. And then Shane last week gave a wonderful message 
on forgiveness, the beginning of the horizontal. You see, the roof has to be off toward God, but the hardest part for us as church folks are the relational sins. It's the stuff in our hearts, dealing with one another. And Shane talked about forgiveness. Now, this message that I'm going to talk about today really is part two of forgiveness. It's a very difficult message, and I have prayed a great deal, and my heart has been heavy about this because I really believe that this is the crux of the matter, and this is why the pipeline of revival gets clogged in our churches and in our walk with God, because it's so difficult for us to deal with. And I want to talk about today the poison of bitterness, the poison of bitterness, When you don't forgive, the other side of the coin is bitterness. When you do not forgive, the other side of the coin is bitterness. I want to read something to you. Again, it's this book that I've been referring to from a God-sized vision. And again, I want to underscore this one thought in your mind that one of the incredible signs of revival is the absence of barriers in our relationships with one another. In fact, every authentic revival, everyone that's been authentic, and I'm not talking about the ones that, you know, they do all this emotional stuff and you're still hating folks, but every authentic revival, every last one of them, there has been, there's been the resolution of conflict and there has been open pathways in relationships. There cannot and will not be any authentic moving of the Spirit of God in Fellowship Bible Church unless we as a church deal with relationship sins and issues. Now, having said that, I, I want to read a remarkable story to you. Uh, some of you may know that around the turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s, there was an incredible move of the Spirit of God and a revival that really swept across uh, the Far East involving China, Japan, and and Korea. Some suggest today that the rapid growth of the church in China today, despite communism, is a continuation of that revival that started at the beginning of the 20th century. It's a real powerful work of God. But there was also a a great persecution that took place. Uh, There was the famous Boxer Rebellion, where Christians were killed and persecuted like crazy. Picked this up here in this book, uh, uh, Hanson and Woodbridge give an account of a, of a miraculous situation there in a town in China. I'll read this to you. It was a miracle that even a small Christian communi- community survived in Sinminfu to greet Goforth. Jonathan Goforth was uh, a missionary to, uh, during that time. During the Boxer Uprising, the Sinminfu Church lost 54 martyrs. Unbound, the church compiled a list of 250 people who conspired to kill the Christians. The Christians waited for a day to come when they could exact revenge. An evangelist whose father was murdered confessed to Goforth that he could not forgive. He pledged never to rest until he avenged his father by killing the killer. Nine boys who lost family members admitted that they wanted revenge, but asked the church to pray that they would find grace and forgive. The boy's willingness to move on left an impression on the elder evangelist who said, and I quote, 
When I went home after the service, I thought of how the devil would be sure to take advantage of my example and put you boys to ridicule. People would say that you were too young to know your own minds. Then they would point to me as an intelligent man who surely ought to know his own mind and say he doesn't believe in that foolish talk about forgiving one's enemies. So lest the devil should mislead you, I have bought these nine hymn books and I'm going to present one to each of you in the hope that every time you open it to praise God from its pages, you will recall how that I, an evangelist, received from him grace to forgive the murderer of my father. When the evangelist finished, the crowd tore up the list of 250 names and stomped on the remains. I don't, I don't want to be cavalier today and minimize the pain that we have experienced at the hands of people. There are some hellaciously cruel things that have happened to folks. And yet I want to tell you, I want to tell you that bitterness can be overcome. I've lived long enough to talk to people who have had some awful things happen to them. I've talked to kids who have been raped when they were small. And for whatever reason, they refuse to be bitter. I talked to a woman whose son was brutally murdered, who refused to be bitter. I've talked to people where awful power games have been played with them and manipulated and and run roughshod over it. And you would say it would be normal to be bitter, who refused to be bitter. So I'm here to tell you that sometimes we give ourselves a pass. Now, I'm not here to blame the victim. Please don't hear me. But sometimes we give ourselves a pass and we say that we are entitled to be bitter. But bitterness is an, I don't have the words to say, it is an awful, terrible thing. And it is my prayer that by the end of this message, you will embrace the reality of how devastating bitterness is. You will also see that it is not a neutral thing. It is not just your issue. But it affects everybody that comes in contact with you. Now, I I, I quickly say that all of us offend people. If you are alive and breathing, to be human means that you're going to have two things happen to you. Well, one happened to you, and you're going to do something to somebody else. One is that you're going to be offended and hurt if you're human. Number two, you're going to hurt and offend other people if you're human. So let's just come right out and say it. Because we're not perfect, we're going to say and do things to hurt people and we will be hurt. Now, the path to bitterness begins, however, when either something we deserve is taken from us or something we don't deserve is done to us. That's, that's, that's when it opens up. When either one of those two things happen to us, and if we don't forgive immediately, we don't forgive immediately, We start down that path to bitterness. Something that I didn't deserve happened to me. 
right? Or something that I did deserve was taken from me. And that opens the door to bitterness. Now I want to read a very strong passage of scripture to you. A passage in which this apostle does not mince words. And sometimes there's some texts of scripture that are so clear that to overapply it messes it up. This happens to be one of those texts, and I just want to walk through this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. Four verses, 14 to 17. The writer says, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, circle that word afterward, for you know that afterward, When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place or no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears, though he sought it with tears. I want to give you two big observations that come out of these four verses, and I think it's important to understand this. Now, I need to say something here. Listen to me. Um, most of the epistles that you read, the injunctions and commands were not necessarily intended to be personal, but they were intended to be corporate. You know what I mean by that? He's writing this to the church body. He's writing it to the church body. And so he's saying in the community of the church, uh, these things should not be true or these things should be true. Now, I want to give secondary applications. Certainly, these things should be true of us individually. The reason why I point that out is a very important reason because uh, the writers of the New Testament say that the, the, the individual and the corporate represent each other. And here in the United States, we privatize our Christianity. We think that my stuff is my stuff. But the truth of the matter is we're members of one of another and we're in the body together. And so your stuff is my stuff too. And so wherever you are spiritually affects the whole. And that's why I point this out. It is not a privatized thing. It is a very public thing. Now in this text here, there's a contrast. Um, The two things, let me just give you two observations I want to make here before I get to the contrast. First is this, and you'll see this on the screens. Number one, we all are an environment. Every last one of us. All of us are in an environment. Now, I'm not getting spooky on you here. I'm not talking about, oh, the negativity and, the, and the, you know, all this kind of like new age sort of like stuff. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we are an environment. You're an environment. I'm an environment. It's just not my stuff. We don't live separated from one another. What's in me creates an environment around me. So we're an environment. The second big thing that comes out of these four verses is that to a large degree, the kind of environment we are is determined by (laughs) what has happened to us and how we handle what has happened to us. So the kind of environment I am 
determines how I have dealt with and handled what has happened to me. It's as simple as that. It's not all that heavy. We all have a history. We all have stuff that's happened to us. We all have stuff that people have done things to us or they haven't done things to us. And the degree to which we respond properly to that, we have a healthy environment. And so, when he walks through this, he contrasts two kinds of environments. The first environment, he says, in verses 14 through the first part of verse 15, is a positive, pure environment. In fact, I, I really love the way the apostle does this. He does not, first of all, begin with characterizing bitterness. But he gives us the solution to bitterness before he describes bitterness. He says, this is the proactive, positive environment that should be maintained if you do not want bitterness to dominate your life or those around you. Here are the elements to this environment. In fact, he's kind of suggesting this is how you have a drama-free zone around you. And there are three things, and I just want to make three quick observations because I want to spend the bulk of my time on the second one, the second big negative piece about our environment. Again, look at verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He says that there are three things that ought to be obvious and and prominent in your environment. And these three things, proactively, they're the solution to bitterness. Here are the three things. Number one, Peace. Peace. Now notice how he says this. He gives a command here. This is not a suggestion. He uses a word. He says, strive for peace. What do you mean by peace? Well, in context here, he's talking about reconciled relationships. He's not just talking about your peace of mind, but he's talking about reconciled relationships. This is the whole context here. He's speaking to the church, and so he's talking about people that we, we come in contact with and that our attitude ought to be that we're striving for peace, peace in the relationship. Now, I'm not ta- when he says striving for peace, he's not talking about a cheap reconciliation. Some of us let people run over us, and so we, we you know, and I, Shane talked about forgiveness last week. Well, to be reconciled doesn't mean that you back away from the issues. You can be tough about the issues, but you want, you want to solve the problem. You want to move toward peace. And the word strive there is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word which means to run fast in order to catch someone or something. So he said, you, in the assembly of God, in the church of the living God, you got to run after peace. You run after it. Chase it down. You solve problems relationally. You reconcile with one another. You don't let it alone. You deal with it. So it's, it's no mistake that he uses that word. Strive after, run after it. Run down peace and catch it. The second dominant element in our environment is this expression, holiness. I want you to notice how he says this, though. 
He says, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness. By the way, he assumes strive with holiness, right? That's an ellipsis. He assumes strive with holiness. You, you go after peace with one another. And you also go after holiness. And then listen to what he says. He doesn't just mention holiness, but he reminds us. <laughs> Without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness has to do with the removal of sin in relationships. It's the removal of it. In fact, he says you be aggressive about removing sin in relationships. And I have to tell you, by virtue of the fact, the way he describes this, he reminds us, and I think here's the point. He reminds us that if you can tolerate sin in your life and in a relationship, perhaps you're not a believer. For he says, holiness is what marks the church of the living God. I didn't say perfection, but we deal with sin. We go after sin. We don't tolerate mess. We don't tolerate lying on each other. We don't tolerate gossiping about each other. We don't talk about, tolerate being brutal with each other. We don't tolerate the jealousies and the envies that destroy each other's character. We don't tolerate the passive aggressive behavior that smiles in people's faces and, and undercuts folks. He says, no, you got to remove that sin. That's sin. And you got, you got to remove it. You can't play with it. You can't wink at it. You can't just say that's the way people are. This is a big deal. Your environment, peace, go after that. Your environment, remove sin. Your environment, number three, is extend grace. Grace. Listen to how he puts this. And see to it, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is marvelous. You know what revival is? I've, I've used this analogy before. It's not mine. I got it from someplace else. Revival is a roof off toward God and walls down toward one another. And what he's saying is that when people come in contact with you, they come in contact with hands wide open and a heart that's wide open. Grace has to do with the love and mercy and tenderness of God. Oh, how I want people who come in contact with Crawford to come in contact with the grace of God. I don't want them coming in contact with some opinionated idiot that is always smashing folks or always argumentative, always dismissive of people, looking to start a fight, looking to straighten out people, leading by intimidation and power, people scared around him. No, the writer says, no, 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 no. When people come in contact with you, they ought to come in contact with the grace of God. With the grace of God. And I am so glad. I am so glad that as he addresses bitterness, he says, here's the portrait of what you need to be, okay? Here's what it needs to be. Here's what the church needs to be. 
Here's what you need to be in private. Here's what you need to be with your wife. Here's what you need to be with your husband. Here's what you need to be with your children. Here's what you need to be on your job. Now, you can say some hard things without being nasty. You can confront people without being cantankerous. But you go after peace. You go after holiness. And you do it realizing that God has forgiven you of so much. And you open up your heart and your hands. And you go there. Now, having said that, the writer gives to us the glaring contrast to that environment. The glaring contrast. One is a positive, pure environment. And now he steps in and gives us the poisonous, polluted environment. And he says that environment is marked by one word. Bitterness. Again, I want to read verses 14 and 15 again so that when I read the next clause here in verse 15... It's dropped in this context. Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls or fails to obtain the grace of God. That, in other words, please connect the dots here. I'm not trying to hyper parse words here. That, in other words, what he's saying is if there's an environment, if there's an environment where there is not peace, where there is not holiness, And where there is no grace, this is what's going to happen. This is is what's going to happen. When that is not there, he says, that, no root of bitterness, springs up and causes trouble and by it many be defiled. What will happen if that's not there is that there will be bitterness. Bitterness. Now let me park here for a second and talk a little bit specifically about bitterness. Bitterness. I would suggest to you that uh, when he uses that term, he's really quoting from the Old Testament, and I'll get back to that in a second. But let me see if I can give you three sort of like descriptive kind of definitions of bitterness. The first one is this. Bitterness is the effect of wounds that have not been attended to. Now, we all get wounded. We all get hurt. We all get offended. That's, that's normal. Every day, I'll probably get hurt tomorrow. I'll probably hurt somebody tomorrow. Doesn't intend to do it, but we, that's, that happens. But what I have found out in my life is this. Listen to me. I have discovered with Crawford, the moment I am offended and hurt, I have to forgive immediately. I know me. If I don't, I will launch on a path where that wound will stay open and subject to the elements. I got to do that for my safety. So bitterness is a product. If you just don't deal with relational wounds, you're going to get bitter. You don't intend it, but you will. If you don't deal with your relational wounds, you're going to get bitter. I mean, that's, it's, that, that's the byproduct. The second thing that I would say, and it's close to the first one, is that uh, uh, bitterness is festering unforgiven offenses. You just 
fester in it. He did that to me. Why did he do that to me? I didn't deserve that. That's terrible. You shouldn't treat people like that. You keep picking at the wound. It festers. I deserve better than that. It's raw. Thirdly, the Bible presents bitterness as the infection of a heart. Meaning that it will kill you. I, I, this past week, I met a woman who, um, man, her husband's a Christian leader. And, and uh, I, I, I was at a dinner and, and um, she was in a wheelchair and I noticed that her leg, her right leg had been amputated. And at the end of the event, I was chatting and she he just told me this story. They both were sharing this story. She had, um, she got on a wound, some kind of, bumped it and cut. Well, sort of a minor thing when it happened. It's really minor. And so she kept working. I mean, it got worse, and then it got infected. Well, she should have quickly gone on to the doctor, but she felt like she could deal with it. Well, that thing spread. But by the time they went to the doctor, it was too late. Serious infection. And the only way they could save her life was to cut off her leg. We're going to see in a moment how serious bitterness is. And when we don't deal with our wounds, we don't deal with our stuff, we don't deal with our relational stuff, this stuff is a mess. So, bitterness is deceptive, you see, and, and, and it's seductive. It doesn't really want justice. Bitterness wants revenge. That's the difference. You know, you can be bitter and act as if you're, you're, you're going to sit down with somebody and we're going to work this out. But I have been in situations with two people who have had issues with each other. They weren't sitting down to work it out. They were sitting down not for reconciliation, but for vindication. They wanted to prove how wrong this dude was and how right they were. I'll never forget kind of trying to be an arbitrator, peacemaker with two Christian leaders. This was a number of years ago. And these dudes, I mean, they get to the meeting and they knew who was going to be there. I was going to be there and some other leaders were going to be there. And really, under the guise of, quote, seeking reconciliation, that wasn't their agenda. They wanted to convince us of their position. They didn't want to solve the problem. They wanted to extract a pound of flesh from one another. So we've got to understand that when bitterness grabs us, it can deceive us. We can think we're trying to solve a problem. No, we're not. We're trying to shop our opinion and our position. Uh, let me give you a few signs of bitterness. Sometimes I don't like doing this list thing because it's always inadequate. But sometimes it helps us to understand what it looks like. How do you, how do you know if you're bitter? Now, I got to say, you know, just because these things are present doesn't necessarily mean that you are bitter. But I found that every person, and even in my own life, when I've tripped into bitterness, some of this is present. The first sign is this. Recruiting others to take up your offense. That's almost a telltale sign of bitterness. When, you know, you, you, you're really not, I'm not saying, sometimes we need to go to other people to help us with our thinking. That's sincere. 
But when you're just lining people up to convince them, and sometimes you do it under the guise that, you know, you want their insight and I want you to pray for me and this kind of thing. You know how I stop that nonsense when people call me about stuff about somebody else? I've learned to do this years ago because I learned how deceptive we are. I do two things. Number one, I ask them this question. Okay, before you start talking, I want you to define with me and tell me what do you want me to do about the information you're sharing with me? And then secondly, I want you to know if it involves someone else, I, uh, I would like to go with you or arrange for someone to go with you with that issue to sit down and solve it. And I've discovered 70% of the nonsense stops. But sometimes we're, we, you know, we, we, we just want to, we just, we want a posse. You know, we want somebody to take up our pain and our hurt. The second, second sign might be anger. Now, we all get angry, and I'm not talking about general anger, and anger is not necessarily a bad motivation, a bad, bad emotion. But I'm talking about the anger that's always under the surface. You ever meet people that just looking for an opportunity to get mad? And, and it's sort of like excessive. If you get set off real easily about certain issues, you know, there might be a reason for that. And I've seen people like that, and I've wondered to myself, ooh, who hurt them? Third sign is unhealthy, unbalanced confrontation. If you're always shooting a cannon at a canary, you know, you're, you're excessive in your response to an offense or pain or something. You might be saying more about yourself than you intend to. There's freight behind that. If your responses are disproportionate, you know what I'm saying? Over the top. And you're always looking to straighten somebody out. You're looking for a reason to confront. It could be a sign of bitterness. The fourth one is that you're obsessed with a hurt or an injustice. It's gotten out of balance, and all you can think about is this issue. In every disagreement or every argument or every issue, somehow or another, you find an opportunity to vent this. And it is, it is just kind of like run a track in your mind and a groove in your brain. Well, could be a sign of bitterness. Another one is what I put quotes around, fear and flight. Uh, there, there are people who are, who are conflict averse. You know, who, who for whatever reason, they, 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 they really don't, they run from confrontation. Not only do they run from it, but the, it overwhelms them. And their personalities are, are perhaps a tad bit more introspective and, and, and they're, they're, they're less direct. And often the way they manifest bitterness is through passive-aggressive behavior. I've got a friend of mine that's in this category who, who is... The sweetest, nicest guy in the world. If you'd meet him and have lunch with us and him, you'd say, man, that's a great guy. He is a great guy. But he's a bitter dude because he operates this way. He, 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 to this day, something happened to him years ago with leadership, and he has a passive-aggressive way of undermining authority. Doesn't do it head on. He's afraid to. That's not his personality. But he'll subtly talk about people behind their back and subtly discount them. And always has to do with people that he is reported to. Or you might be bitter, frankly, if you can't face a person who has hurt you. 
You just avoid them. You can't face them. You can't look them in the eye. You might be bitter. I could add others. Well, bitterness is described here in verse 15. There are four things that the writer says about bitterness. He says, number one, it's beneath the surface. It's called a root of bitterness. There he is really quoting Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, where God warns Israel about the hidden bitter people who contaminate others. You see, the problem with bitterness is that it, it gets ingrained in our personalities. It gets ingrained in our character. And if you don't do something about your bitterness, it becomes a part of your profile. You, you, you ever say, you ever people say, oh, that's just the way Crawford is. Or that's just the way so-and-so is. Or that's just the way she is. Or, and, you know, that's terrible. You talk about somebody who is old and cranky and confrontational and hyper-opinionated and super critical and nasty in relationships, and you pass it over and say, well, that's, that's just the way they are. And the reason why, why that's the way they are is because they've never dealt with the contributing factors in their life, the root of bitterness, the issues that they should have dealt with, and that stuff has just gotten ingrained in their personality, ingrained in their character. They weren't born like that. And we keep giving people a pass, by the way. We give each other a pass with that, with that nonsense. Bad attitudes and, and, and power moves with people and mistreating folks. And we just pass, well, that's just the way they are. It's a root of bitterness, he calls it. And we're only free from bitterness when we address the root cause. Quickly, bitterness is also characterized by sudden, unpredictable manifestations. He says it springs up. Springs up. Bitterness has always been there. But it just, it springs up. It's kind of like, you know, a couple of months in the spring here in Atlanta, you know, uh, you got this beautiful green lawn. It looks absolutely wonderful. You cut that sucker and the next day or two it rains, the sun comes out and all of a sudden you got weeds all over the place. They just sprung up. Well, yeah, they did just spring up, but they've been there for a while. The roots have been there. And so what the writer is saying is this stuff just, if it's there, it's dormant. You don't deal with it, you ignore it, you hide it, given the opportunity, poof, there it is. It's all over the place. Thirdly, it's destructive. Notice the expression says causes trouble. That word trouble means to excite or create a disturbance. Bitterness, bitterness not only destroys relationships, but it contributes to division, dissension, and disunity. I'm going to say this, but I have to say this. Please don't get angry with me, but I need to say this directly. If you are bitter, you're going to cause trouble. You're going to cause trouble. I didn't say you might, you will. It's just a matter of time. If you are bitter and you have not dealt, and I'm not trying to slam the victim here, but you've not dealt with the pain and stuff in your heart and mind, you will cause trouble. Because it's the nature of bitterness. Fourthly, bitterness infects others. Springs up, cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. I have seen organizations 
destroyed because of bitterness. One person. I've seen teams, ministry teams with Campus Crusade for Christ on major universities destroyed. The ministry had to be shut down because of one bitter person. A lot of messes that happen in churches, by the way. We, we, we kind of spin it and say, oh, philosophical issues or directional issues or difference of opinion. That sometimes happen. But I found 75 to 80% of the time, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find somebody that was bitter. And this stuff is amazing. It infects people. The word defile is a strong term that he uses. It means to pollute. It stains. It contaminates. And, and it, it, you know, and, and, and bitter people, bitter people who do not repent, you got to go back up. He says the environment needs to be full of holiness. And this is why the church needs to apply church discipline. In the New Testament, there's strong language directed toward people who are divisive. Strong language. And bitter people who do not repent of their bitterness need to be quarantined. God, this past week, I appreciated this. Uh, came up after I spoke at an event and he sh- stuck his hand out. And I went to shake his hand. No, I stuck my hand out and I went to shake his hand. And he goes, no, no, I can't shake your hand. Why? Well, he says, I got a virus. I said, thank you very much. You see, bitterness always wants to recruit allies. That's why it defiles. The very nature of hurt and pain, it wants to recruit allies. Bitterness is not passive. Listen to me, it is not passive. It is not passive. It's like recruiting others in a suicide pact. I, I have met people who have had meetings with other folks to disciple them in their bitterness. Now, that's not why they had them. They didn't say disciple them in there, but that's they, they wanted to kind of get them infected. Their issue. I've learned to tell people who come to me with stuff and say, look, you may have an issue. I've learned a long time ago, your problem with somebody else may not be my problem with somebody else, and don't make your problem my problem with them. It's poison. You remember the, the, you know, the, the line that we use today, the colloquialism? Drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, the origin of that was about, what, 30-some-odd years ago in the jungles of Guyana with Jim Jones. Remember the cult there? And when they came down on him, he had this poison-laced, I don't know if it was Kool-Aid, it was some type of soft drink or something, juice, and they drank it. They drank it. And bitter people tend, they don't mean to do this, they don't mean to do this, but they tend to pass out the Kool-Aid. I've got to land a plane here. There's an illustration that the writer uses that is poignant. He talks about Esau in verse 16, that no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Here he's talking about a reaction. Esau made one fatal decision that launched him on a trajectory of bitterness for the rest of his life. Because of his poor character, he came home, and one of the most sacred things in a Jewish family was the birthright. And as the oldest child, because he wanted a meal, couldn't wait, he traded his birthright. And he lived with a regret. That's why the word afterwards in verse 17 is a frightening word. 
there's typically great grief and mourning when we look back and realize that we have done something awful and the price that we have paid. And the writer puts this in here and he says, afterwards, you see, when you act on your bitterness and you don't take care of your stuff and you don't take care of the relational pain that you have and the stuff that people did to you and you start acting in ways that are, that, that, that are not, not Christ-like because you are hurting and you need some help and you do that and then you look back and say, why did I do that? Afterward. The line, he found no place or he found no chance to repent is a little bit of a better translation I happen to believe what the deal was this. It was involuble, the, the, the birthright decision. And so he goes back to his daddy, Isaac, and he wants him to change it. Isaac said, I can't turn it around. That's what repent means. You made your choice. You made your decision. And there's no place to repair the damage that has been done. In concluding this, I want to say a few things the big thing I want to say is that, listen, bitterness is always more costly than forgiveness. Don't, 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 listen. It is easier to, to be bitter than it is to forgive. I grant you that. It's easier. It's easier to get bitter. It's more difficult to forgive up front. But when you do the hard thing and forgive up front, you are set free. Now, bitterness is easy because I can just withdraw. I can just lie to myself and deceive myself and say that I've dealt with it. Oh, that doesn't bother me, this kind of thing. But I end up paying a huge price on the back end. So it's always more costly. And I also want us to think in terms of the price we pay when we are bitter. I want us to think about that. Think about it. I have met people who are 50, 60, 70 years old who have nurtured pain and hurt that took place when they were 5 and 15 and 20 years old. And it's robbed them of joy and robbed the people around them of joy. And not only that, they've been running the Christian life with governors on, never knowing the fullness and the freedom of Christ. Is that a price you want to pay? What about the people around you? You want your kids to pay that price because you couldn't deal with certain issues and you withheld that from, and don't say it doesn't matter. It does matter. The prison that we put ourselves in And we let belong with brief moments of freedom. But we live in a halfway house rather than being totally free. I want to suggest to you in dealing with bitterness that we do these three things. One, Understand that every sin against a believer is a sin against Jesus. That person that hurt you 
It really wasn't against you. It was against Jesus. Paul found that out the hard way in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus stopped him in his tracks. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Go, what? No, just the church. No, no. When you hurt my folks, you hurt me. And you've got to stop giving power to the people that hurt you. Understand, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And what you need to pray for is mercy for those people who have hurt you. But the devil gets us thinking that somehow or another, we got to get them. No, no, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Every sin that's committed against you is committed against Jesus. The second thing is that God wants us to live with a clear conscience before God and before man. Acts 24, 16, Paul makes this remarkable statement. It always, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Listen to me. Listen to me. I, I, I want you to pray for me. This is a goal of mine. And sometimes it's, 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 it's a hindrance to me because it won't let me do what I want to do. I do not want to die. I don't want to leave here knowing in my mind that I had something against anybody. Now they may have something against me. I can't help that. But I don't ever want there to be one person that I can't look in the eye and say, I love you. And I don't have anything against you. We need to live our lives with a clear conscience. What? There's just too much at stake. There's too much God wants to do through your life. There are too many things that he wants to use you for. There are too many opportunities in the kingdom. There's, there's, there's just too many things your kids can be. There's too much joy you need to give your husband and you need to give your wife. There are too many things that you need to be freed up from. You don't need that anchor in your life. You don't need that mess in your life. You don't need to negotiate all that nonsense. You just need to keep the ball on the other side of the net. What they do with it is their issue. You have to go there. And the final thing is to forgive and choose not to be defined by the offense. That's right. I don't want hurt and pain to define Crawford. I don't want that. That's the reason why I have, I, you know, I, again, I could tell you people that have blessed my heart. I, there, there's some people, I know God gives grace, who, who, have, who, have, who have gone through awful things. And they refuse to cave in the bitter, bitterness. And I want to encourage you today. If you need to make a phone call, make the call today. Well, they won't receive it. Well, I, probably not. That's okay. You're not doing it for them to receive it. Oh, you want them to. You're doing it to get it off your heart. Oh, they're not approachable. Well, you got to get some courage in you. I've heard that excuse too much. They'll cuss me out. Well... They beat Jesus. Make the phone call. Where they're dead, write a letter for you. And in severe cases, get a friend. Talk it over. Your spiritual freedom is too important. What God wants to do through you is too important.
and the clock is ticking and you have an expiration date stamped on you. Take care of your relational business fellowship. Take care of it. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your presence and we thank you for your spirit and we thank you for your word. And God, I just pray for each one of us here as I pray for myself. We live in relationship and we hurt each other and we get hurt. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will keep us from the precipice of bitterness. Lord, show us how to be forgivers. Show us how to deal with the issues in our hearts. God, we need you. Sometimes this stuff gets very complicated, very convoluted. But Father, as much as in us, we want to live at peace with all men. And we want you to keep your hand on us. And we want to be clear vessels, Lord Jesus, of peace and holiness and grace extenders. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen.